constantly use the word freedom because when we're actually on the water there is no inaccessible buildings, there's no stairs, um, there's no you know um, attitudes making things non-accessible. So yeah, they, they are in a and you know they are in a world of freedom where they point the boat to where they want to go. site and had quite a nasty ladder fall so the foot of the ladder slipped out and I fell six meters and broke my back at T4 and damaged the area between T4 and T8 so my actual spinal cord was broken in two places. It wasn't until days later when it started to sink in that uh, what it meant that you know you weren't actually going to walk again. stage to me um, and the reaction really was to try and fight the thing and try and get it get it changed I mean we've still got we've still got scuds that have got um, branding on the sails that said reinstate Paralympics 2020 Thousands of people with disabilities go sailing every year, and it's a side of our sport that is growing all the time, as people experience a level of freedom and control that could be hard for them to find elsewhere in life. Tim Dempsey and Brendan Terrell both play major roles in sailability, the name given to sailing for people with disabilities, and talk in this podcast about who can participate, the technology used, where the sport can take them, and what it is even like to get out on the water. Both Tim and Brendan bring plenty of their own experiences, given both are confined to wheelchairs, and tell their vastly different but powerful stories. They also delve into some of their experiences on the international circuit, including Tim's journey to the 2012 London Paralympics, what the racing scene is like in this country, and the chances of sailing being included again on the programme for the Paralympics. Tim and Brendan were both honest and open in this podcast, but mostly enthusiastic about the possibilities for people with disabilities to get involved in sailing. If you haven't seen Sailability in action, it can be very inspiring, and they're always looking for more people to get involved. So take a listen and enjoy. Tim Dempsey and Brendan Terrell, welcome to Broadreach Radio. Thank you, it's Thanks. good to be here. Yeah. Well, it seems appropriate that we're sitting at a location in uh, Spinnaker Drive, given the nature of our uh, podcast, obviously. Um, but you're both very experienced sailors. Uh, I'm just wondering how often you're getting out on the water these days yourselves. Um, well, I, I'm not getting out anywhere near as often um, as I used to. Um, I guess I'm a lot more focused on you know, getting other people out on the water now and probably a bit more focused on my on my son sailing rather than my own at this point in time. And for me, um, I just entered the 
Auckland Champs, which was about a month ago. That was the first time I sailed since COVID. So um, I can use that for a bit of an excuse, but the, it's really got to do with body shutting down and or the shoulders playing up and not being able to take such a punishment anymore. So I'm just sort of cushioning myself a little bit. But he did come second in the World Cup. <laughs> so yeah, still got, still got it, but um, body's not enjoying it as much. Mm. Yeah. Well, Tim, you mentioned that you're you're working a lot to enable other people to go sailing. So um, can you just sort of talk to me about sailability, what that is, um, you know, roughly how many people do you think at the moment are, are involved in sailability who go sailing each year? Um, so, so, yeah, sailability is all about getting people with disabilities um, out on the water sailing, and there's 10 groups throughout the country now, um, all, all uh, autonomous, um, um, so they each do things that are specific, um, that work kind of in their own um, communities. Um, and in Auckland, what, a lot of what we focus on is, um, is getting people sailing solo, getting them sailing um, independently if that's possible. For some people that, that happens quite quickly, for other people um, it can yeah, it can take quite a bit of um, time for that to happen. Um, and at, at the moment in Auckland we're going through um, a bit of an upsurge I'd say, um, both on um, more, we've got a lot more sailors that have come forward. Um, we're heading into winter and we're actually booking out every, um, every weekend. Um, so yeah, and that's through a lot of, we've had uh, Have A Go Day with, um, with Parafeed, we've been involved with the um, Halberg Games um, with Yachting New Zealand, we had a stand out there. Um, so yeah, a lot of, a lot of interest um, at this point in time. So are we around the 10 centres around the country, are we talking about thousands every year jumping into boats, hundreds? Uh, I, I would say it would definitely be at the thousands, um, um, yeah, because there's, I mean, there's some groups, I mean, some groups put through a lot more um, more than others, certainly Sailability Wellington um, have got three programs running and they're putting through, um, you know, through a lot of sailors, um, so I'd say it would definitely be in... Um, in, in the thousands that are, you know that are going through. So, can you just sort of explain how it works? You know, what's the setup? How do how do you get people physically sailing? Uh, well, there's a couple of different venues you could, or avenues you could take. You could just um, you might have heard of sailability and then wanted to have a go at it, or if you're a bit shy, we can take you through the simulator at the spawning unit, and that's open to anybody that's that might be a bit shy of what the process is or how they're going to be able to get in a boat and so we can take them through those steps in a safe environment with the simulator. But if they're not worried and they're quite robust, they can just come down and jump in a boat and coaches will take it from there. So who can it cater for? Anybody with a disability. In our, in our constitution it actually covers all disabled people and also socially deprived but um, we don't get a lot of people coming down that avenue. It's more more disabled people taking up most of the programs. Yeah, we can so. we can pretty much get anyone sailing, pretty much no matter what their level of um, well we we prefer to focus on people's ability rather than disability. Um, so it all depends on how much function that that they have. Um, we have boats that we can set up with a servo controller so. 
basically a joystick about the size of your thumb. You can um, you can steer the boat left and right with that. You can pull the joystick back to pull the sails in, push it forward to let it out. Um, you can set that up um, to be a chin controller, so someone's got no use of their arms. Um, they can have it set up under their chin so they can use their chin to operate the joystick. Um, we have one of our sailors, she sails using um, one foot, so the controller's just set up on the floor of the boat and she sails um, using that. We've had um, a young guy sail who actually needed a ventilator, um, so one of our um, coaches, Steve, who can kind of fix anything, build anything, um, build a box to sit on the back of the boat so he could actually go, he could still get out um, you know, sailing and have his ventilator. Um, right there with them. So, um, yeah, it's, we haven't really come across anyone that we can't get out on the water. And I've also told you that you can use it, someone uses a straw to puff in and out. What, what's yeah, the sip and puff system. Um, we, we don't use it hugely in New Zealand. In, um, in Canada, I know it's used quite a lot. Um, and that is, yeah, so the sip and puff is um, basically you... Um, there's a couple of different ones. Uh, one has two straws, um, and you blow into one, um, and that will let the sails out. Um, and then you blow into the other, and that will bring um, the, the sails in. And then you can also do um, for the for the steering as as well. So sip is starboard, and puff is port. Um, so yeah, I've got a, a friend in Canada who um, basically um, had a um, an injury, a spinal injury when he was 15 and, um, and can't use anything from his neck down um, and he's regularly goes out sailing that's the technology that, um, that he uses, it really works well for him. And does um, blind sailing also come under remit of sailability? Yeah, we've got a few kids that are coming through the program now that are blind and you know, they, they come into it with the view that eventually they'll be able to join the Blind Sailing Society with their um, sonars that they're running now. Um, or they go to the, or they'll go to the Blind Sailing first and then if they're kids they'll send them to us to get a bit of training first and then um, they'll you know, come up through the ranks and then decide to go and jump, in, jump into the bigger boat. And as far as what Tim was saying with the servo controllers, we can take them with the take them up to that level with the uh, simulator as well. So we've got the chin controllers and all that sort of thing, and um, and we probably put more people through at a higher level with the simulator than than um, less disabled people because it just gives them that environment to be able to figure out how they're going to do stuff. And the simulator can um, can both sides, so they learn how they're going to control their weight while they're in the boat and as the boat's tipping over and that sort of thing. So, yeah, it's, it's a good bit of tick, uh, tech we've got out there. Yeah, I'm keen to um, explore that a little later on in terms of the work that you're doing out at the spinal unit. In terms of the boats that you're using, do you need is it an instructor or, a, or a, a second person to help or are there some boats that are set up that people can go by themselves? So basically, the um, the people with with the high level disabilities, um, they generally go in a boat by them by themselves, um, because of the seating is a lot more supportive, and we can put all that adaptive equipment in um, the servo controllers and um, things like that. So the boats they sell can be sold manually or um, or fully servo. Um, 
Yeah, so, and then we have, um, uh, the other boats we have are two-seaters, so you can actually go out um, sitting beside somebody. And that, that's how the bulk of people um, start out, is they will come um, to one of our, normally one of our Saturday programs or program during the week, and they'll go out and they'll sit beside um, an instructor or an experienced volunteer, um, and very quickly the, the volunteers and instructors will have them um, you know, participating, they'll either be steering or they'll be, um, you know, they'll be on the, the jib sheet or the main sheet um, because it's all, all really about empowering them and getting them, um, you know, sailing um, on their, you know, on their own as, as soon as we can. Do you find any caregivers or family members are, are a bit worried about, you know, their safety when they go out in the water? Uh, yeah, we, def- we, we definitely have that. Um, but I mean, we've we've got we've got a fantastic group of volunteers, and we've got some really really good coaches, and they are used to that. So they they really work um, with the you know with the parents, um, and with you know with the with the person who's going sailing, um, to yeah to kind of address all of those um, you know all of those fears um, that that they have, and often you know we see the. You know the parents are just blown away when they actually see, um, you know, their son or daughter um, actually, you know, sailing the boat by themselves. And also, what we see happening sometimes is they won't be from a sailing family, so all of a sudden they're the expert about sailing. Um, you know, they know a lot about sailing. So you know, things like when they watch the America's Cup, it's it's the um, child who is teaching, um, you know, the parents about sailing. So I think that's really empowering for them. Um, and also um, we welcome if they bring their siblings down, um, you know, they can take their siblings out. So it's something that they can actually do and be in control. Talk to me about that feedback that you get, maybe from a, a first sailing when someone who's got maybe quite a range of disabilities there you know, when they jump in the boat for the first time, what is what sort of feedback do you get? Yeah, that's what keeps us doing it. You know, it's the feedback that we get. It's marvellous. Um, being able to give back and seeing more people being able to enjoy the sport. That's what it's all about, just giving back, I think. Um, and it mightn't, it mightn't be much that the person's being able to put... They mightn't be able to portray... That how joyful they are, but you can read it in their eyes, you know, that they've been able to, you know, it might be someone that's got a severe disability and all they've been able to control is their wheelchair their whole life, and then you give them a boat and, you know, they've just been able to double the amount of things they can control. So it's a big thing for a lot of people is um, being able to get out on the water, which is in itself a difficult environment for people with disabilities to connect with. So, um, yeah, I think it's pretty special. That's why we keep doing it, I think. Yeah. Yeah, so, I think um, freedom's the word that really comes up a lot of the time. Um, yeah, people constantly use the word freedom because, as Brennan, you know, explained, is all of a sudden you're out there. Um, when, when we're actually on the water, there is no inaccessible buildings. There's no stairs. Um, there's no, you know, um, attitudes making things non-accessible. Um, so yeah, they they are in a and you know they are in a world of freedom where they point the boat to where they want to go and you know that they, they are just relying on the you know the 
the water and the and the waves and the and the wind to um, you know to get around. So I think it is, yeah, it is that. And, and I mean, I've had endless amount of emails, you know, from parents that have just been so, um, you know, so thankful of what you know what we've been able to do, and um, yeah, just really thankful of the coaches um, and stuff. And yeah, I mean, like Brendan said, that that's why I do it. It's you get such a buzz. Yeah, that you don't have to get it all the time, um, but yeah, and and when you're actually physically down there, um, just the smiles on their face when they've done their, their you know their first solo and their um, you know and their and their parents' excitement of actually seeing that it's just amazing. What is it like for you two when you go sailing? Is it a similar sense of freedom? Yeah, absolutely. Still get a buzz from it. Um, and if you haven't been sailing for a while, you re- when you, and you go out again, you realise what you've been missing, that connection again. So, yeah, I really enjoy it. Just wish the body could handle it better, but um, we're, we're working our way around doing that too. So, um, yeah, and I suppose, I don't know, maybe we've got a, I've got a little bit jarred from it, but um, for doing it for over 20 years, you know, it's... But it's Still really enjoy it. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I still yeah, really love getting out on the um, getting out on the water. Um, it's yeah, I mean my um, conditions progressive conditions, so um, yeah, over the over the years I've you know, I've got a lot um, a lot weaker, so I've you know, struggled more and more but used more and more um, you know, technology to help. But um, yeah, I mean I, I just absolutely still really love um, getting out on the water um, and yeah it's just a really great sport It's probably a good point at this stage then to just sort of talk a little bit about your, your separate journeys and I'll just start with you Tim, you talked about your condition um, so you've got uh, muscular dystrophy yep. uh, a muscle wasting condition when did that you first start noticing symptoms? Um, so it's called so um, so my specific muscular dystrophy is Becker muscular dystrophy, and um, it, it really started as far back as I can remember. Um, I can always remember at at primary school and and probably even as far back as kindy um, when I was getting up off the mat, just standing up. All the other kids could stand up without um, any kind of need to. Um, push off the floor and I always just had to give a little push nothing like you wouldn't have even really noticed it um, so I just kind of noticed then and then um, all the sports days I went I just um, in any running race I was always last um, so there was something there kind of right through um, right through primary school and it wasn't till um, I was um, sailing with my dad in the Bay of Islands and we did a walk on um, Irupukapuka and we walked up to the um, to the trig station which was fine and, and then when I was walking down my legs started really um, really cramping up and got back to the boat and and the, I mean the next day I was totally fine so I didn't really think um, um, a lot of it and thought it was just um, you know that I'd just got bad cramp or something um, and then it was a year later that I was um, doing the, we did a family trip around the South Island and I was doing the Milford Track, which I really wanted to do. Um, and then on the first day, um, 
when I was walking into the first hut, which is the easiest walk, um, it was quite cold and, um, yeah, not the greatest weather. Um, my legs just started totally cramping up to the point where I had to kind of be helped with my dad and my brother um, to, you know, to get to the first hut and then, yeah, and then came out the next day and then, um, yeah, and then went through the process of, of going through lots of various tests and, um, in Auckland Hospital and, um, yeah, eventually um, I was diagnosed with um, Becker muscular dystrophy um, and there was no, because there's no um, family history um, so I'm what's known as a spontaneous mutation, so I just popped up out of the blue, as it were. So how old were you when it was um, diagnosed? Uh, so I was 15 when I was, yeah. So what was that like as a 15-year-old to hear, you know, were you angry, were you frustrated? Uh, it was good and bad, mainly bad. Um, the good thing was that um, I had, there, there was a reason that I was the way that I was. So all of a sudden that I could I could put my finger on it. It wasn't, um, you know, for any, you know, it was something that I had directly knew what it was. Um, and then the other side is, um, you know, as a 15-year-old, I can remember meeting a social worker at the time, and he said, oh, um, he said, oh, well, let's meet somewhere on neutral ground. So I said, oh, okay, so, so I can remember meeting him in McDonald's. And, you know, he said to me, oh, you do realise by the age of 45 you may be in a wheelchair. Um, and... That kind of really just put me off um, having much to do with um, anything to do with my condition. Um, I just kind of went into a denial um, denial stage and really just tried to hide it for um, you know for for as for as long as I could. Um, and then as it started progressing, I just really um, yes, that took me a few years, but. Um, just embraced it and accept it and and I met someone with the same condition as myself um, and kind of, you know, realised that, well, life's not over, there's still a lot of stuff that I, you know, can do and achieve in life um, and then I just got to stage I didn't care, didn't care what people thought, uh, it was just that's the way I, you know, this, this is me and um, take it or leave it, but, but it was, yeah, it was a process to get there and, and that process is different for everybody. So were you, you mentioned the fact that you were sailing with your dad as a kid. Did you continue to sail throughout um, those years? So I, um, so I started sailing um, with the Rotary Yacht Club in Optimus um, and I, I actually won my very first race. I didn't actually realise until I'd crossed the finish line because the coach just said sail for that mark and I'd just sail for that mark and I'd get there and she'd say right now you need to go for there and I'd just sail for the next one. Um, and yeah, so to, to my surprise, she said, oh, you've just won your first race. So that was quite exciting. Um, and then I progressed to sailing, um, had a P class. Um, we lived right next to the lake, so we kind of grew up um, sailing and kayaking and rowing and, and, and general, um, yeah, general boating. Um, so yeah, pretty, um, yeah, pretty lucky to be able to do that. And and towards the end of sailing P class, I just noticed that I was just not, just couldn't keep up with my peers, you know, as well. I couldn't hike as hard. as There was just like, it wasn't massive. It was just, just subtle, but just enough to kind of, um, you know, put me behind. Um, so, yeah, so I, yeah, I suppose I got a little bit, um, a little bit disillusioned with sailing and, and did actually give it up for, for, 
many years, um, and then I read an article about sailability Auckland, I was actually still living in Rotorua at that stage, um, and came up and went for a sail, I can still remember it, um, that was when we had their little 2.3s, and hopped in and went for a sail with my um, partner at that stage, um, and and I just, it all just came back to me, I said this amazing um, feeling of and just the freedom and so I sailed back to the dock and I said do you mind if I go for a sail by myself so she got out and um, I was and I was hooked again I, I just enrolled with sailability and any chance I you know I got um, I went sailing. So when did the Paralympics get on your radar? Uh, so in 2003 I went to Outward Bound and did a week-long course there and one of the things they do this, we did like a goal setting um, session um, and they encourage you to you know set some pretty big goals um, so yeah so it was there that I um, decided that I want to represent New Zealand and I want to go to um, to the Paralympics I didn't exactly know how at that stage the only option was the 2.4 um, and so yeah so I that's when I kind of started, the, the goal was, was kind of set. Um, and then I did lots of stuff just kind of that led towards it. So you eventually, you teamed up with uh, Jan Appel. Yeah. And obviously Brendan had a bit of a role in that, which we'll explore um, shortly. How did that um, association, I guess, come about? And, and how, how did you quickly, did you manage to get yourselves... Um, on a world stage and competing at that, that in top level? Uh, so Jan had done um, quite a lot of sailing on the sailing simulator. Um, so yeah, she came um, on my radar, I think through Brendan, um, was the first one who kind of um, identified that she was um, potentially, you know, the right, um, the right person. Um, she was, because uh, the scut had to be, have to be male, female. Um, so, um, yeah, and Jan was, she seemed quite, um, pretty keen, so, um, we got her down for a, uh, for a sail, I think the first time we went out it was 25 knots, and, um, and we went out sailing, and she really did, um, take to it really, really well, um, and we kind of came back, and my coach, um, Rob Hilkmer, um, we, we just came back and, um, yeah, we kind of said afterwards, oh, I think she's definitely got, you know, a lot of um, a lot of potential. And then she came back the next time, I think it was even windier. Um, and it was funny because afterwards she said, I just thought it was normal. I didn't know that, um, you know, that that, that wasn't, wasn't so normal. Um, and then so, I mean, we're quite different people. Um, and we, you know, we came from quite different, yeah, um, different areas of life I suppose to um, yeah to come together and sail together and we yeah we just gelled quite quite early on um, I think we were both both really determined and we are both um, very competitive as well um, so yeah so we didn't tell her at first and then I think about the second or third time she came back we said oh the worlds are on in I think it was five months um, are you keen? And she said, yep, yep, she was keen. So um, we just, we trained and trained and trained and trained um, and um, for the 2010 Worlds um, in Holland in 
um, Maiden Blick, and we, yeah, we, we just, yeah, went all out, um, and I actually bought a, a new Scud that was shipped directly there, um, and we went and, yeah, put the thing together. This is Jan's first, not, not um, you know, not regatta, it's, just, this is her, it's the world's, and it's her first time, you know, sailing in any type of regatta. Um, so, um, yeah, we, we were, for the first few days of the regatta, we were, we were kind of just hovering around that, um, that selection, you know, the, the sixth, um, position, um, and on the, yeah, I still remember it very well on the last day, because it had been quite light wind, on the last day the wind really, um, really got up, and before the start, Rob said, I think, you know, um, go like try and just win the right and go right and, and you'll be fine um, so I think for the first time we actually listened to him um, and yeah and we did we just banged it hard and top mark we were first place um, and we managed to hold on through that whole race and um, finished in second and then the second race everyone went right but we managed to finish in third so that was on the last day um, of qualifying so we really did you know we, we nailed it from you know, just kind of only just picking up that sixth qualification um, spot um, to actually, you know, confirming that we were, um, yeah, that, that we really wanted that spot and we got it. So I think I read somewhere that, that um, you beat the world champs at that regatta. Yeah. And so afterwards, you know, what did you think was potentially achievable at the London Paralympics? Um, well, yeah, I mean, I mean, we we well at that stage we it was still a long long way to go um you know it was a couple of years um a couple of years out but yeah that really gave us the belief that you know that we could um you know do really well and um you know potentially finish at the top end of the um of the fleet so what was you know what transpired at london what was um your olympic experience like uh so i mean it's it's an experience i'll never forget it was um yeah, it was just the most amazing experience. Like, I just can get over how well everything was organised. It ran just like a finely world machine from when you got off the plane at Heathrow um, to when you finished. Um, and everything was laid on for you. It was just um, um, an amazing, yeah, amazing experience. Um, and we um, we actually really struggled in the, um, in the Paralympics. Um, the Weymouth, which was renowned for um, you know strong heavy winds, um, um, had really really light winds for the whole regatta, which was definitely not our favourite conditions. We're probably the heaviest um, um, the heaviest team, um, and it was I mean, it was just it was it was a fabulous experience, but just unfortunate that um, you know we kind of went through all of that and we didn't we didn't come out with the result that we wanted, but we were still really stoked to have, have, have got there, represented our, um, you know, our country um, and, you know, and achieved the goal, um, the goal that we'd actually, um, we'd actually set and, yeah, I mean, it was, it was fabulous because it was, it really was a team effort, it wasn't just Jan and I, there was um, Rob Hilkemer and Steve Crunch and, and lots of other people, you know, along the way that really did help us out and put a lot into our um, campaign. So you could campaign next time with uh, Gemma Fletcher. 
Yeah. How close did you get to competing at the 2016 Rio Paralympics? Uh, well, we did we did qualify. Um, we didn't get selected to go, but we did actually qualify the country in the in the second round. And the first time with Jan, we qualified in the first round, which I think really made a big difference. Um, but it was a bit different with Gemma. We um, we didn't have um, we didn't get to do as much international sailing as we'd done as I'd done with Jan. Um, and I think in the end that really um, yeah we really that was something that we really did struggle with. Is not is just because we went from one world to the next worlds. We'd never done an we hadn't done an international regatta between the two. Um, and everyone else is doing lots of international regattas and stuff, and, and we, we, you know, we did get left behind a little, I, I think, um, and um, yeah, there was, yeah, um, it was just it was a much tougher time, um, and there was some, you know, some personal stuff that Gemma went through, some personal stuff that I went through, um, so it was just, yeah, it was always going to be a much harder, um, harder road the second time. Um, you know, but having said that, we, we had some, yeah, we had some fabulous regattas that, you know, that we did do um, and sail together. Um, and I think it was, yeah, it was a bit unfortunate because, um, you know, we, we gelled really well together. Um, you know, we sailed really well together. Um, but it was just, it was just a constant battle of fundraising to, you know, everything we did, we had to raise all the money ourselves. So. Um, it, it was a really, a really hard road, much harder, I felt, the second time um, yeah, than, the, than the first time. So did that essentially signal the end of your international career? Um, yeah, it, did, it pretty much did for me, um, definitely, because um, at that stage um, we knew that um, um, sailing was out of the Paralympics for, you know, for 2020. So 2016 was the, um, was the last was the last chance for anybody really um, so that did, did kind of signal the end for me um, but but I think it I mean my two young boys were growing up um, and it's it, it is when you want to sell at a high level it is a bit um, you know selfish in some ways um, and yeah I just decided that you know that I'd, I'd had a really good go um, like I've got some memories of it that I will never forget was just had some absolutely fabulous times um, but you know things change in your life and you know I just decided I need to focus you know a bit more on you know on some other stuff in my life and, and a bit more focus on my boys. I'd just like to switch now I guess uh, to, to Brendan's story because it's quite different um, so I, I, your life changed quite dramatically, I think, in 1999. Can you just sort of explain what happened? Um, yeah, 1999, so I had, uh, I was working on a building site and had quite a um, nasty ladder fall. So the foot of the ladder slipped out and I fell six metres and broke my back at T4 and damaged the area between T4 and T8. So my actual spinal cord was broken in two places. And I'm on what's known as a complete spinal um, patient, which is the cord has got no signal below the broken area. Um, <clears throat> and at that stage, um, I don't recall anything from the fall. I remember the ladder slipping out and I had a rope coming over the building 
because um, I knew that I knew the area where I was uh, working was a bit risky, so I had a ladder, a rope coming over, but I had to climb up the ladder to tie the rope off the first time, and and that was when it slipped out. So, um, and I remember the foot of the ladder slipping and me reaching for the rope, and that's the last thing I remember. And then I woke up in hospital, and I'd already been operated on, and I was in ICU, and the nurse was just saying, "Do you know what's happened?" And I go, "No, I don't know what's." So she had to explain that you know I'd broken my back and um, and she just spelled it out for me, you know. Um, what was that, that like to hear? Um, I don't think it actually hit home at the time. I was probably pretty out of it on painkillers and um, morphine and that sort of thing at the time. So I just said, "Oh yeah, sorry about that sort of thing." You know, I was more apologising to her um, for putting her through. The, uh, night shift or whatever, but um, it wasn't till days later when it started to sink in that um, what it meant that you know you weren't actually going to walk again, and I was I was in the ward by that stage, and um, uh, one of the things, one of the scariest things was when um, there was a um, the nurses changing over shift, and then the new nurses coming on, and I heard them say, "Well, how do we look after him?" And I thought, oh, crikey, what have I got myself into here? The nurses don't even know what to do. Um, yes, that was a scary moment in hospital. But um, I've got to say that my journey in Auckland Hospital, I was there for a couple of weeks, um, was amazing. They was, I was, was really well looked after and they did know what they were doing. Um, and it's not till you get to the spawn unit that you realise how good you just had it at the Auckland spawn I mean, at, at Auckland Hospital, because they do look after you, but when you get to the spinal unit, it's time for rehab and you've got to work. So there's a big shift as far as from um, getting you stable to when you get to the spinal unit and it's rehab time and you've got to build some strength and knuckle down. Yeah, so you, you do really realise that part of it. Um, and then I was on the spinal unit for three months going through that stage of um, learning wheelchair skills and how you're going to get in and out of a bed and into your wheelchair and how to how to shower yourself and toileting and all that sort of stuff. Um, and um, at the time, the spinal unit had, it's run a lot different these days, but you were set a goal. So your level is T4, so you should be able to, um, be able to do a transfer off the floor and into your chair and you can't go home until you can achieve that so that was my goal I had to try and achieve that as quickly as possible and I sort of set it um, set that goal to try and get out of there before my my birthday I think I got out two days before or something so that was pretty good but to be able to achieve that floor to chair transfer is, takes a lot of strength and manoeuvring it so it took, did take a long time to, to master that. Do you sometimes replay that day over again on the building site? Um, yeah, not, not often um, because I don't really remember what happened. I just remember the ladder slipping out um, and I, I, was, I was only told by other people on the site that what had happened. So I'd fallen and landed on the floor sanders van 
I'd taken out his mirror arm and that had bent me backwards. Um, so I landed on my back on it and it just bent me the wrong way. Yeah. So I don't recall any of that. So when I reached for the rope at the time, I banged my head on the wall and that just knocked me out before I even fell. So, Or maybe that was part of why I fell, I don't know. Yeah. So I don't really recall it. I still drive past that building on a regular basis and go, oh yeah, <laughs> you got the better of me sort of thing, but uh, I don't really ponder it that much. Yeah. No reason to. I think I read somewhere that you were quite active, uh, certainly a water sort of sports guy beforehand. Just, just yeah. what were you into before your uh, accident? Well, my dad, I suppose, started our water journey off. He was a swimming coach. So I could swim from a very early age, like even before school. Um, and then my brother, we grew up in Invercargill, so it was, um, it was a good sport to get into in, in a small town like that. Um, and then my brother and I both got into surfing about the same time and used to think we were the most southern surfers in the world sort of thing. Uh, it took quite a took quite a hardy sort of person to be able to do a sport like that down there. But I really loved it. Um, and that sort of began my journey with the ocean and um, was keen on surfing and scuba diving and fishing. And um, at the time of my accident, we um, I'd been in the... Um, uh, building industry and all that sort of thing for about 15 years and I was trying to get away out so we'd, we'd built a boat and the plan was to ship this boat up to Samoa to charter out as commercial fishing and um, broke my back before we could achieve that goal so we had to sell that boat. That was, that was quite devastating at the time but yeah I was very keen on all water sports at the time and surfing was probably my biggest love followed by fishing and scuba diving were the three main sports I'd be doing at the time. How'd you get into sailing? Well that was why because being in the wheelchair I was missing that connection with the ocean and um, at the time um, Sandra Blewett who was quite a famous long distance swimmer she was running parafed and um, she taught me to swim again or taught me how to be able to function in the water and um, that was good so I could do a length of two I couldn't do a proper freestyle stroke because I'm, in my back I've got rods going right down the length of my back holding it together so it prevented my shoulders from rotating properly and so I'd sort of do a stretched out doggy paddle but I could do lengths of doing that um, but I couldn't get changed afterwards in the pool at the pool so I'd have to come home wet and get changed at home and then during the winter that just got too difficult. So then I was looking for another connection and Sandra said, oh, why don't you try sailability? And I'd never heard of it. And like Tim said, I just came down and jumped in the boat. And at the time, I think we only had like four little boats and we just used to sail around in St. Mary's Bay Pond. And that was the extent of it. You'd come down on a Saturday and Malcolm Waller was running it at that stage um, basically single-handedly um, and 
had to say, oh, here you go, get in the boat. And there wasn't much instruction. You sort of had to figure it out yourself and jump in and then sail out and then go, oh, how do I get back? <laughs> so it was just by watching other people how they did it. But I really did feel that connection with the ocean again, so I signed up straight away as well. That was um, the beginning of 2000. So it was, so it's pretty was, quick. Was yes. So my accident was in May and beginning of probably January, February of 2000. I was sailing again. or well, had that connection off the ocean, um, and that began my journey of sailability. So um, and at the time there was no lifting equipment. You had to get down on the deck, on the dock, and off your wheelchair and sort of shuffle into the boat as best you could. Um, and I could see that it was that was preventing people with high disabilities to be able to join the sport. They were doing the best they could, but I could just see that there was more potential. So I joined the committee, and um, luckily at the same time, Tim and a few other guys joined the committee fairly soon after, and we all sort of, we all sort of had the same idea that you know what we're doing is good, but we can do better and so we started fundraising and getting lifting equipment and and better boats to sail and that sort of thing and it didn't take long for more people to see the benefit of that and and I think that's really started to grow from then yeah so at the time it was you know there was just a handful of people that would come down and go for a sail um yeah so in terms obviously been to the Paralympics. Just talk to me, I guess, about some of the successes you've had as a as a racing sailor. Um, yeah, I, I guess in the early stages, I wasn't really that good at racing. It took me a long time to get quite good at it. Um, in two thousand and nine, we hosted the Worlds here in Auckland, so that was the first international sailing I'd done, even though it was in New Zealand. Um, and Tim and I and the committee were all organising the actual regatta as well as sailing in it and I think that was a mistake. I just, I wasn't sleeping at night, I was stressed about what was going to happen the next day and um, and I didn't do particularly well at that regatta, I think I was like 14th or something, um, right in the middle of the pack and made terrible mistakes out on the water. I was trying to overpower the boat and oversteering and all this sort of thing. And it was just the stress level of trying to run the regatta at the same time as trying to sail in it was just too much, I think. Um, but I enjoyed it. And then I just slowly started getting better at it. And um, I think I won the Nationals in 2011 for the first time. So it was a couple of years later that I, you know, we were starting to have good coaching by that stage too. Um, well we actually were hiring coaches rather than just someone coming along and helping you put get in the boat. So that helped a lot, having um, Gary Corkin would have been my first coach probably, a professional coach. Oh no, actually, we had, um, i forgetting his name now. Lawrence. Yeah, Lawrence Meyer. I think is his name. He was the first, he, he was the first guy that we hired. And he was quite he was quite good. He was a good coach. 
Um, but he didn't stay with us very long. But his mentor was Gary, and he introduced Gary to us. So Gary took it over from there. And um, I think it was about 2006 we gave Gary, we gave him the instructions that we wanted to be able to get up to a world-class level. So that was his protocol to do. Um, and then I suppose when Tim and Jan went to the Paralympics, we could tick that off as being achieved. So, but in between that, we were, we were, being, we were able to organise national championships um, and we're, the sailability classes were invited to the Sail Auckland regattas at those stages too, so that was quite good. So we were sailing in some decent-sized fleets. Um, and then I, then I managed to win the national champs again in 2013, which was quite encouraging. And between that, I'd gone to um, the Sydney Worlds in 2012, and that was my first international, true international regatta. Um, and that was really good. I did quite well in that. Um, it was either on the, I think it was the third day I in, ended the day in first place. I hadn't won any races, but I had just done well enough in each one. And that third day was, had been a very stormy day, and um, and I had I do well in the heavy weather, so that suited me well, and I did quite good, and ended up at the head of the fleet, but my boat was full of water at the time. I was like sit, literally sitting in water. Couldn't reach my bailiff. It had gone around the back of my seat so I couldn't bail but um, perhaps that heavier boat had helped me in that heavier wind. Um, but I think I actually got hypothermia from sitting in the water all day and then the next day I just couldn't function. I, I'd been drained from it and um, didn't sail very well at all and ended up going down the fleet quite quite badly. And then um, the last day of the regatta was more or less called off with no wind when I was when I was feeling better and thought I could um, claw my way back up the fleet a little bit, but um, yeah, it was called off with not enough wind. But I ended up in eighth place in the world, so that was, that's the highest I ever got, yeah. Was the Paralympics ever on your radar? Um, not really. I, I was, it kind of was, I suppose. It was, it was a goal, but I knew that I wouldn't be able to, or I had, had bigger or different um, priorities. I had four kids that, when I had my accident in 1999, I four kids under eight. And um, at, my to at that time, it was one of the things that helped me get over um, the spinal cord injury was trying to keep that um, the sh keep the shock of what had happened to me as minimal as possible for the kids so that was my goal was to try and give them as normal life as, as possible so um, and I knew that to be able to achieve a Paralympic dream would mean a lot of traveling and being away and and taking away from them so it wasn't really a goal um, I really enjoyed training with Tim and Jan at the time so they needed training partners to sail as they were training in New Zealand and Steve and I used to jump in the scud and, and train against them 
on a regular basis so I really enjoyed that top level coaching that Tim and Jan were getting I think it helped me a lot too um, but the actual goal of Paralympic wasn't a, a big priority for me We've, we've heard briefly about um, your work and, and Tim's association with Jan as well. Can you just uh, tell me about the work that you're doing at the um, at spinal unit um, in Otara? Yeah, so um, I suppose it goes back to when we did host the World Champs here in 2009 and we'd got, we got wind of um, the sailing simulator had been brought into the country to go to the um, spinal cord conference that uh, travels around New Zealand and Australia each year, goes to a different town, and it, the conference was in Christchurch in 2008, and um, Norman Saunders, the inventor of the simulator, had brought it over to the conference to show off, and um, we got wind of it being there, and I rang him and said, is there any chance of you bringing it up to Auckland to... Um, just have it as a draw card while we're hosting the Worlds here in 2009. And he said, um, if you can get your local spinal unit to agree to have a six-month trial of it in their spinal unit, I'll bring it up. And I I was good friends with the CEO of the spinal unit at the time and said to um, Mary Ann Cox, um, what do you think? And she just agreed straight away. She said, if we can get a free trial of it, why wouldn't we? So um, he brought it up and we had it on display during the um, Worlds and um, I think a few people got in and quite enjoyed it. And then um, we got it set up in the gym at the spinal unit and, and I just used to um, make myself available to anyone that wanted to have a try. Um, and we had a couple of coaches come in and sort of show us the best way to teach people and all that sort of thing and I thought oh yeah I can do that and um, by the time we got to Jan I think we'd probably trained maybe 20 people that had that had learnt on the simulator and then gone sailing on the water and um, we had a have a go day one day and Jan came along and she was probably the worst at it out of everybody I think it took her like on the simulator you're you're more, it's like sitting in a bath and you've got a big TV screen and on the screen you've got a course that you go around and the, the bath um, reacts to, to how you're sailing around the course and you've got um, ropes and a steering um, tiller and she jumped in and most people could sort of get around the course under four minutes sort of thing and I think it took Jan like 13 minutes on the first go um, and she enjoyed it um, and then she said, oh, this is quite fun. Do you mind if I come back? And said, oh, yeah, and I came back. So I booked her in for a time. And she still wasn't improving very well, but um, she said, oh, can I come back again? And then and again and again, and she was just determined. And it was her determination that um, made, made me say to Tim and Rob, who I knew they were looking for a, a female sailor, that maybe you want to have a look at Jan, because... Um, you know, she's, she's a fast learner and she's getting her times down, but it's her determination that is what's making ringing the bell for me that she might be a good pick. And the guys picked her up and and um, took her from there. So, and I'm, you know, sort of proven that it was 
she was the right person. Yeah. So how realistic is it and how many do actually go on and jump in a boat? Um, well, I think we're up to about the 60 mark, 60 people that have that we've taught in the simulator that have uh, moved on to and sailed on the water. Whether they've stayed with us or not is another thing, but they've actually tried sailing for real. We're up to about the 60 mark. Um, and a lot of them, a lot of them are impatient at the time and they just see it there and and it's another way of them having physio so while they're sitting in the boat they don't realize it because they're concentrating on a tv screen but they're actually building arm strength by pulling the rope and using the tiller which is quite heavy it's weighted to like um, 12 knots the tiller's weighted to 12 knots so um, it's quite a heavy helm and um, and as the boat's canting from side to side they're also learning how they're going to control their body and um, as the boat leans over and so they're, they're building upper body strength if they've got that at the same time as um, um, so it all adds to the benefit of their rehab and their physio physio so, by stealth right yeah it kind of is a little bit yeah um, and then a lot of them either really love it or they've just used it as a tool to get better and the ones that do love it it's an easy um, transition from there onto a boat yeah so we and we just try and make it as easy as possible for them to transition to the boat so we'll set up times and the coaches all know that he's coming from the simulator and usually the coaches comments are saying you know how easy they are to teach because they've already got a little bit of knowledge mm -hmm. yeah so it is very the simulator is is very um we're lucky that the simulator will simulate one of the boats that we operate so it's set up with a liberty uh, hands of liberty so um the transition from the simulator to the water is fairly minimal it's really just the environment and um and the, you know the wind in your face rather than Sailing off a TV screen. Mm. Yeah. You're also very active as an administrator, um, as well as being president, I think, of the Spinal Support New Zealand. You're also chair at Sailability Auckland, and you were president, I believe, of the International Hansa class between 2013 and 2018. Um, are you a sucker for you know getting involved in things, or what? You know, tell me about some of the things you've achieved in that time. Uh, yeah, sucker. I don't know, maybe. Um, hard to say no. Um, I've actually just signed back up to the president of the Hansa class again just this year with um, Paul Wager having to go in for an operation and um, I put my hand up because I didn't really want it to flounder. And I guess that's got part of it, to, got part of what to do with his, um, you know, being able to provide that opportunity for more people is a big thing and um, having the hands of class there uh, enables people to be able to race at a high level so that's really important. Um, as far as the spinal unit is concerned that the um, spinal support our main job is to provide peer support for people going through the spinal unit so we've we have um, people in chairs that go around 
and show people that are transitioning from bed dressed into wheelchairs and show them wheelchair skills and some of the um, mental and physical hardships that they're going through and, and help ease that path. And then we also take them on through that transition of um, discharge from the hospital and into the, and into the community again. So that's one of the hardest transitions is when you're going from a um, supportive environment in the spinal unit where everything's laid out fairly easily into the community where you've got barriers in front of you and steps and how you're going to um, be able to travel to different destinations and all those sort of things. So we take people through those steps. Uh, and that's very rewarding too. Um, it's a um, it's a thing that I probably get the most reward out of being able to see people transition um, in in a, in a fairly well mentaled state at the time. Because so you actually go through quite a hard mourning stage, I suppose, when you're when all of a sudden you've got a normal life and then the next day you you haven't. You've got a severe illness or disability that's just been lumbered on you and you've got to you've got to um, kiss goodbye to all those dreams that you had prior hand and you've got to build up your own strength but also new dreams to be able to give you goals and and um, you know the mental ability the, the mental ability to be able to carry on with your life as best you can so that's sort of what we're trying to do out there and similar, um, similar to that, saleability is very similar to that as far as being able to provide a sport or, or a um, recreation that someone with a severe disability can do and to a high level. So in, in some way they work in hand, hand in hand with each other. Yeah. So. In, ter in terms of... Um Parasailing at the highest level, it's off the program for the Olympics um, for Tokyo. How did you both react when um, you heard the news? Let's start with you, Tim. Um, yeah, pretty devastated actually. Um, yeah, I, I can yeah still remember it. Um, yeah, quite clearly, it was just before um, uh, sail Auckland, um, and. Yeah, um, it was a bit of disbelief, really, that um, how, how this, you know, how this happened. It seemed to be a bit out of left field um, at that stage to me. Um, and the reaction really was to try and fight the thing and try and get it get it changed. I mean, we've still got we've still got scuds that have got um, branding on the sails that said "Reinstate Paralympics 2020." Um, so. Yeah, we just tried to do everything we could to get it, um, you know, to get it reversed. Um, and at that stage, I was the president of the um, the Scud 18 class, and yeah, we just pushed really hard to try and get the get the decision reversed. But um, you know, in hindsight, it was never really going to um, going to change and lots of sailors around the world that you know they really worked hard to get it reinstated as well but the decision had been made so um, yeah we kind of had to live with it. I guess 
as a, an administrator, perhaps that's part of the, the things that you're working on now, but what needs to be done to get it back on the program? Is it, is it something that's achievable? Yeah. Um, in hindsight, we sort of know now that one of the reasons why um, it was dropped was the International Federation of Disabled Sailors couldn't prove that it was a viable um, competitive sport in enough countries around the world. And so we know that now is one of the reasons why it was dropped. Um, and that's what the big push is now, is to um, spread into different areas like Africa and Pacific Islands and smaller nations and build the classes up in those, in those countries. So we've got more competing countries so that we can do a, do a viable challenge to try and get it back in. Um, We've had one go at that as far as trying to get it back into Tokyo and I th and we missed out. Um, and I think it was Taekwondo and a few other sports that got in instead. Um, but there's still a big push to get back in to the ones that are going to be in France in the next round. Um, but there hasn't been a lot coming out of... Um, I think COVID's got in the way of it a little bit. Um, as far as what's actually happening in, with the growth of the sport, I think COVID's really um, made that really hard. And I think in the early stage when we first found out, um, you know, World Sailing did do a lot to try and, um, and they still are to try and get back in. They disbanded what was IFDS, which was essentially a, you know, an organisation of volunteers that was in charge of disabled sailing throughout the world. Um, that was kind of almost standalone to um, World Sailing, so they disbanded that and set up the Para World Sailing Committee, which was much more directly associated with um, you know with World Sailing, and they did put a lot of resource into um, building the numbers up. They ran um, uh, Paralympic development camps and um, you know in various countries, and they did in fact get the numbers up. I think the magic number was thirty two nations. And I think at the, one of the worlds they were up to 36, um, they, they were certainly um, you know, achieving really well and I think when they heard that they hadn't got back in was right at the start of, I just can't remember exactly now, but um, they were literally starting one of the para worlds which I think they had the biggest number of entries at and they got the news just basically right at the start of the um, of that regatta, so um, yeah, so there is, you know, there are a lot of people trying lots of things to, you know, to get sailing back in. Um, yeah, I wish I wish I could say I was a bit more confident that it is going to get back in, um, but I don't know. I suspect it might be the thin end of the of the wedge, and I suspect them there there is other deeper reasons that we may not, um, that may not be, you know, in the public that, that are going on um, behind the scenes. Potentially, I don't know, but I just, yeah, wish I had a bit more confidence that it was going to get back in. Yeah, well, Paris is not really that far away when you think of Olympic cycles, so maybe, you know, Los Angeles becomes more of a target, would you say? Um, I mean, they're all targets, you know, so you know, we hope to be able to get back in, but... Um, yeah, I, I'm not sure. We do seem to be like hitting a brick wall there that no one's really aware of. Maybe it's because, I mean, we all know how big a job it is to be able to host a regatta. 
um, and shipping boats and, and people is expensive. So I don't know whether that's got anything to do with it. Um, and, and I even see it with the Olympics, a lot of classes being dropped and changed into um, classes that are more um, appealing, you know, with the foils and all that sort of thing. So I don't know, uh, there's some brick wall that we're hitting there that's prevent, well, preventing it. Yeah, and I think at, at an Olympic level, like, don't take anything for granted. Don't um, think that it's just going to be in the Olympics forever. Mm. Um, because as Brendan said, there's lots of, you know, lots of things we are seeing changing and, you know, trying to drop certain classes and, and stuff. So, um, yeah, I would say don't, yeah, certainly don't take anything for granted. It seems like the local racing scene in New Zealand is quite healthy. Good numbers at, at nationals. Just, am I reading it right? Yeah, at our, at our last nationals in, um, in Taupo, we did... Um, um, we did really well. We had really good numbers of sailors. Um, the previous year was in um, was in Wellington. They got a very strong sailability group and lots of boats based there. Um, and I think the numbers we were only a few behind Wellington, which was pretty impressive considering we'd been postponed due to COVID. Um, and and there's no sailability group in um, Taupo, so it's really. Um, you know, it's it's not the easiest venue for us. We've got to take all the infrastructure there with us and put the, you know, the hoists on the on the dock and stuff. And it's not the easiest of places um, for us to sail it. But um, you know, Lake Taupo Yacht Club did a you know did a fabulous job, um, and yeah, and it it was yeah really um, good regatta. And since Bryn and I have been involved since two thousand and nine, um, we were also involved with setting up the um, the. Um, the National Hands of Class Association um, in New Zealand. So we've watched the growth, um, you know, since since the beginning, and yet yeah, numbers are definitely, um, you know, definitely growing. I can remember, you know, in the past we were struggling to get five in in the three hundred three um, double or single fleet. We we seem to get a good number of liberties. Um, and you know, and now we have no problem, um, you know, getting good numbers in those classes. And we've got um, we've got lots of vision impaired sailors that sail um, through different sailability groups, you know, right through the country. So there's a division for them. Um, and yeah, it really is just going from strength to strength. So what does the sort of future hold, I guess, for sailability in this country? What does it look like? Uh, lots of groups in the South Island. Um, that's that's <laughs> an area that we've got um, Sailability Nelson. That's the only um, group with, that we've got in the South Island. So, I mean, I'd love to see, you know, we've got 10 groups in the North Island. Well, why can't we have 10 groups in the South Island or five groups in the South Island? Um, and, yeah, I mean, I'd like to see, um, you know, the, the nationals, you know, becoming bigger and bigger. Um, and they're actually becoming more events, you know, on the, you know, on the calendar that people... Um, yeah, can can sail in and and just really get more people, you know, on the water and experiencing, you know, um, the stuff that Brendan and I have experienced, and um, you know, it's it, it really is a life changing thing for so many people. So, if someone's listening, whether they've got a disability themselves or a family member or a friend, you know, what can they do if to get them down to a sailability centre? Well, I guess just just on that note, 
just to finish off what Tim was saying, um, so the actual New Zealand Hansa class own boats that we can loan to clubs that, that are looking to set up. So um, we can loan the boats and then they, they can build up the number of people to come along um, before they have to go out and buy boats themselves. So uh, we're trying to make it as easy as possible for more sailabilities to expand. Um, and I was just talking to people last week in Christchurch as far as trying to get boats down there. So um, watch this space hopefully. Apparently the clubs are ready for it down there. So um, yeah, we're pretty hopeful. Um, back to your question, what was that again? In terms of if, if anyone listening has, has got a disability, wants to try, or they've, they've got a friend or a family member who would like, they'd like to encourage to get sailing, what can they do? Uh, well, I, I would, um, I mean, the first thing to do is, um, you know, jump online and type in sailability and, um, you know, find your, um, you know, find your local sailability group and, um, and make contact with them. Um, if, if you can't find one in your area, contact one in another area. Um, you can contact, you know, Sailability Auckland will put you in touch with um, people in your local area. We actually have people that are members that are from out of town. Um, so it's, you know, it's, it's really about just get, get out there and, and, you know, and, and give it a go. There's lots of people that are just willing and, you know, they're ready and waiting for you to come and, you know, and, and try it. Just come and try it. You don't have to, um, you know, we offer two, our first two sessions are free. Um, because we just want people to come and try it, see if it's something they want to, um, you know, to carry on with. Um, and then in Auckland, it's we we charge ninety five dollars for the year, and you come as come as often as you want. Um, so yeah, just just I really encourage people to um, to try it and not think that it's something that they can't do, um, because it, it, I mean it really is a very inclusive sport that a lot of people with lots of different disabilities can do. Well, it sounds like it represents great value too. Ninety-five dollars a year is for something as often as you want. So you've pitched it at a really good level. Yeah, and it's different. Like it's different with everybody. Like you know, um, yeah, some don't have a membership fee at all. So um, you know, some sailability groups you can go sailing for free. Yeah, that's part of our goal is to try and make it as accessible for everybody. Um, a lot of people with disabilities have already got. Um, you know, a lot of hardships of um, dealing with their own disability and the overheads that that takes. So keeping the price down is one of our goals. And we don't mind um, going out and funding to try and subsidise that to keep the price down as low as we can. So, yeah. I mean, I just got approached by um, someone rang me on the weekend, um, a friend of theirs who's done, he's done a huge amount of, um, of sailing over many years. Um, has got a, um, a neurological um, condition and, and clearly doesn't have, you know, a lot a lot of time left, and um, that they just really want to get him. He just really wants to go out and have one, um, you know, one last um, sale while he's still able to, and it's like we'll just make it happen. Um, you know, whatever we have to do um, to make that happen so that he can achieve that. Um, that's that's what we do. That's what we're here for. Well, the work you guys are doing is um, is fantastic, and you know to be able to see the the growth of the the sport and the, and whether it's at a 
racing level or recreational level, it doesn't really matter. It's, uh, it's really wonderful what you guys are doing. I do have one more question though, uh, and you know what's coming. So um, who would like to start with their worst wipeout ever? Um, there's a couple, but one, one that is quite memorable was uh, Sale Auckland 2013. I was actually um, I was actually sailing the Scud with um, Stephanie Hazard. She was um, she went to the 2012 Olympics. She was the um, um, skipper of the women's match racing team. Um, so we actually after the uh, Paralympics we set our boats up with um, with trapezes on the Scud. Um, so you could sail with a person with a disability and someone on trapeze, and we'd and we got it was a windy, windy regatta, and I just it was so much fun. I just really enjoyed the regatta. There was we only had three scuds, and um, the boat that was winning was um, was one of our coaches, Charlie, was sailing, and he must have had twenty five kgs on step, so he could really flatten the boat down, and they were off. Um, but so so that beat us in every single you know every single race, but we were having a ball, and then I remember the last race we actually got in front of them and we got around the top mark, hoisted the um, Jenica, and yeah, I mean the wind was pumping and it, it was just like an absolute buzz, um, just surfing the waves and we were just killing it downwind, and then um, all of a sudden the um, the kite um, Halley had let go. And the kite dropped about two and a half metres, and Steph was on trapeze on the wire right um, behind me, right on the corner of the boat. And that was just enough to, um, we just, you know, all of a sudden, the drop in speed, she fell off the trapeze into the, um, into the water, and I'm sailing off downwind, heading roughly for the finish line with, um, with no... Yeah, no, um, no crew. And when you're in the scud, I'm strapped into the seat, and I can't physically get out of the seat, even if I wanted to. Um, so I've got no controls. I don't have any of the sheets. I've got nothing. All I've got is steering. I've got this kite, which is kind of flapping, dragging through the water a little bit, and then, um, and then I thought, oh, well, that's that's right. I can see the finish line. I'm just going to head straight for the finish line, and someone will see me surely. And then um, Charlie came past, and they sailed off down to the um, down to the finish line, and sailed through the finish line. And said, "You better get up there and help those guys." And and they kind of said, "Oh, we thought they were all right." He said, "They're better sailors than that." Um, so anyway, um, as this was all happening, um, there was a guy sailing in from one of the outer courses in a fin, and he he sailed past. Uh, he saw Steph in the water, so he sailed over to Steph, um, pulled her in the boat, and Steph said, "Oh, it's the first time I've been in a fin," and he said. It's the first time I've had anyone else in a fin. <laughs> so they sailed back down to where to where I was, trying to um, yeah head through as many. Um, I just thought, well, there's lots of race courses there. I'll just keep going through all of them. Someone will need to get to me. <laughs> um, so yeah, by this stage, um, yeah, one of the chase boats had actually um, actually come up, and yeah, we managed to get yeah Steph back on um, back on board, and um, and off we went. So that was my yeah most memorable um, yeah wipeout. Um, did you actually finish the race? Um, we did, yeah, we did finish cross. the and We did cross the finish line. But and, and is it legal to cross with only one crew member? Uh, well, I didn't cross, no. We got Steph back on before then, so uh, we did cross the finish line, but obviously we'd had outside assistance, so um, we were disqualified in, uh, in that race. Um, but, yeah, that, that was um, yeah, one of the most exciting um, yeah, regattas that I've done, and I still have a picture that actually... Um, Brendan um, 
painted of um, of that regatta on on my wall. So he's um, also a, quite a talented artist as well. And your story, Mr. Trail? Um, yeah, not quite as dramatic as Tim's, but um, mine was in, when we're sailing in the national champs in um, Wellington. And as you can imagine, it was pretty windy. And on the first day, um, on the first race, I broke my boom. And um, the end of the boom ended up stabbing me in the leg. and. Um, and no one was coming to my rescue or anything. So I was just flat, left floundering out there for quite a bit and all the boats zooming past. Um, but I ended up, did, getting, did get a tow in and uh, managed to get a spare boom out of the container and uh, missed the next race, but was back on the course for the third race. Eh? So when but you say the boom stabbed you in snapped, the leg. Yeah, it snapped in half. So punctured your skin? Yeah, punctured my skin. So blood Talk. everywhere. Oh, it wasn't too, wasn't bleeding too bad, um, but had a nasty bruise there uh, the next few days. Um, uh, yeah, the, the boom actually snapped in half right by the yoke. Yeah. So that just goes to show the strength of the winds in Wellington um, to struggle down there. Well, I'm sure it's yeah. not the first and it won't be the last no, uh, boom that's probably snapped down there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Hey, well, look, it's been a, a really fascinating um, chat today. I really appreciate your time. Um, and as I said a little bit earlier, really uh, grateful, I guess, for the work that you guys are doing for the sailing community. So cheers again. Thank you. You're welcome. Well, that's it for another episode of Broadreach Radio. I hope you have enjoyed hearing about another side to our sport. If you've got this far, you've probably liked what you've heard, so please like and share the episode. And take a look through some of our older interviews. And don't forget to tune in again in a fortnight when we bring you another interview with an influential person in the New Zealand sailing scene. Take care.